Find your sermon outline there in your bulletin, and let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Matthew 8, 14 through 17 today. We're continuing in our exposition of the book of Matthew. This is our 30th installment today in this book. We are just blazing through this book, aren't we? We're taking our time because we're just letting the word of God set the agenda for what we're talking about each and every week. And today we come to another beautiful story in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see it here beginning in verse 14 through 17. And we're going to read it first and then we're going to launch into what it means for our lives. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother, mother mother-in-law, lying in the bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. End quote. All right, well, that's our text for this morning. We've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew, and here in chapters 8 and 9, we've been looking at the narrative section where Matthew is going to describe for us the works of Jesus. We're looking at his many works. And the focus in Matthew 8 and 9 seems to be on his miracles. Uh, There are physical healings, there's casting out of demons, exorcisms, the power of God, the power of Christ over natural elements. We're going to see in a couple of weeks where Jesus calms the storm. The miracle of inviting people into the gospel life through life transformation, through following Jesus All of these are amazing miracles. And so the theme today is miracles. And we want to look at this story in the context of Matthew 8 and 9 and just see what it has to say to us about miracles because there's a lot of misunderstanding around today and I think for a long time when it comes to miracles. What really are miracles? What constitutes a miracle? Have you ever had a miracle happen to you? Uh, Have you ever experienced or witnessed a miracle? Most of us consider miracles as those unusual happenings that result in an unexpected benefit for our lives. That's the way many people look at miracles. So we use the word miracle to describe things like, I made it to work on time today. (laughs) Or that there was no traffic on Highway 880. Or that I passed a test for which I didn't study. A miracle. Um, or maybe we were in a near accident in our automobiles and we, we escaped without any injury, a, a, a miracle. Uh, maybe a shorter than usual sermon. <laughs> miracle. Well, on the other hand, how do we know that if the simple mundane and sometimes routine things of life aren't the actual intervention of God that, that is working behind the scenes and doing some supernatural Work. I'm reminded of the cute story of the, uh, the guy that was caught in the flood and he's standing on the roof of his house and a boat comes by and says, hey, get in, we'll save you. And he goes, nope, I'm, I'm believing God for a miracle. So the boat drives off and, and now the water's up to his ankles and another boat comes by and says, hey man, get in. And, and he says, nope, I'm trusting God for a miracle. That boat takes off. Now the, the water's up to his waist and another boat comes by and, and he says, Get, they say, get in. He says, no, I'm, I'm waiting for a miracle. I'm trusting God for a miracle. 
And then it goes all the way up to his nostrils and he's, he's just about ready to go under and a helicopter shows up with a ladder and they shout down, grab the ladder, we'll rescue you. And he says, I'm waiting for a miracle. And he drowns. <laughs> and he stands before God as the story goes and God says, why are you so upset? And he says, well, I was, I was waiting for the miracle. And he says, I don't know why you're so upset. I sent you three boats and a helicopter. Is God, is God working in the, the behind-the-scenes things of our lives? I mean, do we, do we see that? Well, of course he is. And sometimes we're waiting for these special things, these amazing things. Now, the writers of Scripture are pretty uh, particular about the use of the word miracle. And they would, they would make us weigh in a little stronger than on things like, uh, I got to work on time. Um, or, or that I was in a near accident. Or many of the other things that sometimes we see as miracles. Uh, they're rather stingy with with calling something a miracle unless it is in fact the insertion into the routine nature of life with a supernatural act of God. The New Testament writers are very particular about this and and that's what we want to look at today in this story and in the context of Matthew 8 and 9. What I think I can show you today, what I hope I can show you today is that when it comes to Jesus' miraculous power, there's, there's seven, at least seven, this is not an exhaustive list, but from the context of what we're looking at today, there are seven qualities that would, that would characterize a true miracle. And, and maybe these will help us sort out some of the things we hear or, or are impressed with in our culture or things that we see on TV or hear about to put a little bit more substance uh, to them so that we have understanding. Um, the first thing, if you're taking notes, that I see in verses 14 and 15 of this text is that when it comes to Jesus' miraculous power, there's a personal uh, touch. There's something that comes very personally to us. Say the word personal. Um, we find all through the New Testament, when Jesus does a miracle, there's always a personal connection in some way. Um, miracles are not sort of abstract things that happen outside of, of God's contact or relationship with his people. And in fact, and we'll get a little deeper into this, there's different words used in the New Testament for miracles. And, and in this particular setting that we're looking at here today, uh, Jesus walks into this house, and here he is, he's with Peter and the other disciples. And did you know that Peter was married? Some of us didn't know that. He had a mother-in-law, she was lying in bed, and she had a fever. And verse 15 says that he touched her hand, and the fever left her. What I love about that, and we've already pointed this out in previous texts in Matthew 8, that Jesus has a personal touch here. He touches her hand. We talked about the power of personal touch, and in this case, the power is actually miraculous. Just like with the leper, when Jesus reached out and touched the leper, he was healed. And then we saw last week, Jesus only had to speak the word to the centurion about his servant, and, and his servant was miraculously healed. Did you see that in both, uh, uh, in this text, both his touch and the word are represented. His touch with Peter's mother-in-law and, and with a word to those who had come that were demon-possessed and, and needed physical healing. The point is, Jesus' miraculous power is, is personal. He's interested in you. He cares about what's going on in your life. And sometimes he will actually intervene and turn over the natures of, of uh, or the law of nature to actually get to your attention or to remind you that he is God. And he will do that sometimes in, in rather unique ways. In fact, we heard the story this morning of a man named Andy who was in a, a prison cell ready to take his life and he heard a voice and the voice said, read the, read the book. 
See, the Holy Spirit even speaks English. I mean, that's amazing. But it's an amazing thing that the miracle took place in Andy's life, that he heard the word of God. And the greatest miracle, if you're taking notes or you're writing something down, think about this, that when it comes to Jesus' miraculous power, the greatest power ever demonstrated is the power that transforms us from dead people into live people. To cross from death into life, like Jesus said in John chapter five, verse 24, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has passed over, has crossed over from death to life. That's the greatest miracle. And so many people are are waiting for the great miracle of God to do something in their life. But here's the reality is, as many people are looking for miracles to simply have God conform to their agenda, a lot of people look at Christianity that way. Some of you sitting here today look at Christianity as the means by which you can get God on your agenda. God will help you out. God will get you to where you need to be, where you want to be. That's not Christianity. Christianity describes a God who is sovereign over all things, who declares to all of humanity that we are lost and separated from him in our sin, and in his mercy and grace, he extends a call and invites us to come and place our faith and trust in Jesus. And in that moment, when we come to Jesus, he transforms our lives. He makes us from dead people into a living people. And that's the greatest miracle you will ever have. That's the greatest miracle, I believe, that he ever performs. Because all of his miracles, even mentioned in the Gospels, point to that reality. Miracles are not just about, they're not about getting God to get on our agenda. They're about watching God roll out his agenda. I think about all the times that God has touched your life since coming to Christ. I was reflecting over this and I thought, wow, Jesus you know, he's personal. He saved me when I was a little boy. But then I remember sitting in the top row of, of the Oakland Coliseum when it was called that um, back in the early 70s. And Billy Graham was speaking there. And our church, a little church across the bay, had grabbed some of the people from the church. And we went to this thing. And I, I remember kind of going a little disgruntled. I'm in eighth grade. I mean, who wants to go to a stadium and hear a preacher? And I remember sitting up in that top section. Every time I go to that stadium, I look up and I remember where I was. And I remember hearing Billy Graham preach so powerfully about the gospel and about our need to follow Jesus. And I remember that night, that had a profound impact on my spiritual journey. Jesus had already touched me as a little boy. I had given my life to him, but that night was another touch in my life. I remember a few years after that, Roll, the forward, roll forward a little bit and here I am sitting in a little Christian camp up in the Sierras, a place called Sugar Pine, and I'm listening to a speaker speak to about 300 high school students, of which I am one of those students, and I'm thinking the whole time as I'm listening to this guy, he must have spoken to my parents before we came up here, because <laughs> he's talking about me. And he's talking about the way I'm living my life at school with my friends and then I live a different life when I come to church. And I'd already started developing this sort of religiosity even as a Christ follower. I was a different guy around the people. I had privatized my faith like some of us do too. Oh, today we're worshiping God. There's no other name. And then tomorrow we go out into the world and we live in our business contacts and we cheat and we, we break rules and we, we don't live the Christian life. We don't represent Jesus very well. Some of us are very good at doing that. We've privatized our faith. That's not what following Christ is about. It's not privatization. It's a very public demonstration. It's learning how to represent Christ wherever we go. We're salt and light, right? Jesus touches our life at different points. I remember him touching my life at that camp. That was a big turnaround point for me. 
And then just a few years after that, I'm about 19 years of age, 19, almost 20. I'm sitting in the church over there, the same little church, after a kind of a radical experience where I think I saw the miraculous hand of God do something that I'd never seen before with a kid that was all caught in the occult and worshiping witchcraft and all kinds of weird stuff and how God mightily delivered this young man. And Bill was a changed guy. And I remember going up into that auditorium That little sanctuary seats about 300 people sitting in the back. Everyone was gone. The light on the cross. And I remember, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was as if Jesus was saying to me with his hand on my life, I want you to leave what you're doing. You're pursuing a life of fire science. You're going down this career path, but I want you to follow me into a a life of vocational ministry. And I remember kind of just as clear as a bell in my spirit knowing that's what I needed to do. Going home, waking up the next morning, going down to the fire station where I was a volunteer and testing all over the place, telling my captain I wouldn't be around anymore. God had called me into vocational ministry, going getting transcripts from the school I went to, the College of San Mateo, transferring them to Simpson College, which was in the city at the time, San Francisco, telling my parents that I had done all this and they're going like, whoa, whoa, slow down, what's going on with you? But I knew that Jesus had touched my life. Now listen, that doesn't mean when Jesus touches your life, he's going to call you into vocational ministry. In fact, I hope he doesn't. We need a lot more people out just in the business sector being salt and light. I'm not saying that the highest calling is to be a pastor. It's just my calling. What's your calling? Jesus touches us in different ways. Those are touches. So the point is, Jesus' miraculous touch begins at salvation, but he's going to keep touching us all the way through our Christian life. And if you're listening and careful, maybe, this, maybe today is one of those days. His miraculous power is what? It's personal. Number two, it's also effective. Say the word effective. And what I mean by that is when Jesus does a miracle, it, something happens. Notice verse 15. His, and the fever left her. And then down in verse 16, the end of it, he drove out the spirits and healed all the sick. Nothing can explain what happens here or in other instances that we find in the Gospels when it comes to miracles other than a divine act of supernatural power. This was not through the agency of medical doctors, practitioners, medical surgery or procedures. This was purely a supernatural work with no other explanation that, than other than that God did it. God broke in interfered with the laws of nature and supernaturally acted. That's what biblical writers define as a true miracle. But you know, like I said a minute ago, how do we know that God doesn't do one of those kinds of miracles in ways that we don't even know about? People that are struggling with cancers and suddenly they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, your cancer is in remission. Is that because they went through therapies or was that the divine hand of God just putting a stop on the growth of that cancer? I mean, I don't know. I know this, that God works. I know God is working always. God providentially works. Romans 8, 28 says that we know God causes all things to work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his plan, right? So we know the dumb stuff that we do to us and the dumb stuff that happens around us, God is still working out for our good and his glory. That's how amazing God is. And he's doing that at times with supernatural work, works that are unexplainable. Jesus' miraculous power is personal. It's also instantaneous. Excuse me, it's also effective. Thirdly, it's instantaneous. Say the word instantaneous. When a miracle happens, a biblical miracle, it happens instantaneously. If God 
heals supernaturally, it will be instantaneous. Now, he does heal, I believe, through medicines and doctors and all of that. But, but a miracle where God actually interrupts something that is a natural course is something quite different. Like, I mean, if, if I told you today I have the flu, I don't have the flu. But if I told you I had the flu and you said, hey, I'm going to pray that you get better, chances are in about seven days I'm going to be better. <laughs> and you might say, I must have the gift of healing. I prayed for Pastor Larry. No, 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 no. No, a miracle that goes along with healing is an instantaneous thing in, in the biblical record. I've heard people, unfortunately, give people hopeful statements, something like this. I have the gift of healing, and if you'll allow me to, I will pray over you, and your pain will diminish in a matter of days. Or you will gradually start feeling better soon. Uh, That's not supernatural healing. Supernatural is an instantaneous thing. Notice that Jesus touched her, and her fever left her. And Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 4 says, and she got up immediately at once and began to serve him. There was no delay. She wasn't saying, ah, I'm still a little stiff here. I'm a little, you know, give me a few days and I'm, I'm with you. No, she just jumps up and starts serving as if she had never, ever been ill. That's a beautiful thing. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe it has. I know someone that came to our cancer support group that had been diagnosed as as a cancer patient. She was going through some tests. They were going to go in and do a biopsy. Um, And when they went in for the biopsy, the thing, the little tumor that they were going to go after was gone. And they said, it's gone. You're okay. There's nothing here to biopsy. That's a miracle. That, that, That can be a miracle of God. Now, does he do that all the time? Actually, I don't think he does. Because if we understand the idea of miracles, we know that miracles have a purpose behind them. Which brings me to my fourth thing, and I'm going to talk about this for just a minute. Verse 15b, Jesus' supernatural power is also purposeful. Purposeful. Now, notice that she got up, she began to wait on him. Uh, The word to wait here is the word that we translate also deacon. This is a word that describes service. And I want to be really clear that the grand purpose behind all of God's supernatural works, watch this, is for his glory. Get that down. It's for his glory. It's not for your agenda. It's not even for your benefit. It's for his glory. But when it does come, if God does a supernatural work in your life, the natural response, biblically, is to get up and serve. Service is a result of, of being touched by God. So I'll throw this little question out. Have you been touched by God supernaturally? If you're a Christ follower, you need to say, yes, I have. (laughs) Because he's given you eternal life. Has your response been to serve him? You see, if your response was to be a consumer, what else can I get out of this thing called Christianity? You're missing what the Bible says about what it means to follow him. And why Jesus would do the miracle of healing you of your sin and lostness and giving you eternal life. The reason he did that so that you would become a forever follower and servant of his. So if Jesus has touched you, the natural response should be I'm serving. So we talk a lot about service here too. And it's amazing how the scripture just weaves its way into all of the things that we're about here at Three Crosses. We're about worship, community, and service. It's real simple. Three little pronged process. And so we talked about community a couple weeks ago, and now we're talking about service, and I'm just asking you, are you serving him? 
with your life. I'm not talking about doing a job in the church, although it could end up doing that, but I'm talking about, do you see yourself as a servant? You're reporting to duty every day. You get out of bed before your feet hit the floor, you're saying, Lord, I'm reporting for duty. What do you have in store for me today? I'm on mission with you. That's an amazing way to live. That's the adventure. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And I love that in this text. She gets up and she begins to serve him. Now the reason I brought that in in terms of the purpose of the miracle is that all the way through the scriptures you see that miracles point people to Jesus. They point people to Jesus, which is gonna lead into the next thing we say. But let me give you, if you're taking notes, you may wanna jot this down. There are four uh, words for miracle that we find in the New Testament. The first word is simeon. You don't have to write it down, but the first word literally means sign. You could just write that down, sign. And, that, and, and the signs that we have in Scripture, in fact, you want to see an example of that, go in Matthew, uh, just a couple of pages over to chapter uh, 12, and beginning in verse 38, Matthew 12, 38, nice to hear pages turning, because we love the book, the book. 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. What did Jesus say? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now here Jesus uses the word sign, Simeon, and Matthew records it. This is a sign. It's like a signpost. They're saying, show us that you really are who you say you are. Remember, Matthew is building an argument to declare that Jesus is the Messiah and not sentimentally, but with verification. And that's why he's showing us miracles. Miracles are a verification. They're an authentication of the claim of Christ for who he is. So the first word is this idea of sign. And Jesus said, an adulterous generation looks for a sign. I think there's a lot of people today looking for signs. You watch that? You see it? People just go in droves to places where they can look for some sign. But you see, the sign has already been given. Jesus said, here's the sign that's going to be given. The sign of Jonah. The Son of Man will go into the earth for three days and rise again from the grave. He says that over in John chapter 2 also. Destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up. So the first word is sign. The the other word is uh, tetera. And the word tetera means wonder or uh, astonishment. And it's what happens when miracles take place. It's the response of the people that Jesus would perform a wonder. Then there's the word uh, dunamis, which just means power, the power of God. And we see that word referenced in the miracles of Christ. And then one last word, we just see the word ergon, which is the word for work, the works of Christ. And Jesus did these works, uh, great works, powerful works, miraculous, astonishing works. And all of these works point, they are a point, they're a signpost to who Jesus is. The miracles took place not to just gratify somebody's agenda. The miracle takes place to verify the servant and to legitimize the message. That's why miracles are found. That's why if you really study all the Bible, you'll find that miracles comprise a very small part of the overall scripture. And we kind of feel like miracles are just happening everywhere on every single page. No, Jesus even held back. When they called for a miracle, Jesus said, I'm not giving you a miracle. You're just a sign-seeking generation. And so be very careful about sort of this concept that we hear very popularized in modern Christianity where people are just constantly, you need a miracle. You need to come and see the miracle. And they're constantly probing. And a lot of times what's connected with all of that is how much faith you have and even how much money you're willing to give. 
I'm seriously warning this congregation, as I would to anyone who is listening, to be very careful about the messages that you buy into about miracles. Because they verify. That's the whole point of the miracle. Now listen, if we have the word of God verified by the messenger from God, Jesus himself, if Hebrews 1 is accurate in saying that God once spoke through the prophets and through uh, through. Uh, others that came with the word, but in these days he has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have the completed word of God, if we believe that there's no new revelation out there, that God is not adding to this revelation, if we believe it's been delivered to us once and for all, then we know that the grand purpose of any revelation, or excuse me, any miracle is to point us irreversibly to the one who alone holds the keys of death and life, Jesus Christ. So, it's, it's purposeful. His miraculous power is purposeful. It's also, verse 16, it's also appealing. Say the word appealing. I mean, when Jesus does miracles, let's face it, people want to come. And, and Jesus here is in the home with Peter's mother-in-law. And notice verse 16 says, and when evening came, many who were demon-possessed came. Now, when evening came, interesting. Why evening? The other gospel writers tell us that this happened on the Sabbath, so you had to wait till sundown before you could actually walk the journey because there were Sabbath rules that they kept. You couldn't walk certain distances on the Sabbath. And so all these people come out in droves. Why? Because they believe, watch this, they believe that maybe their loved one might experience the same kind of miraculous transformation that they themselves had experienced. Now, certainly there were some seekers, sign seekers in the crowd. But what I want to just remind all of us, and it just, it strikes me, that all these people were being brought out and they came to where Jesus was. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, here we are, we're witnessing life transformation through following Christ. When we give our lives to Jesus, uh, that's, a, that's the greatest miracle of all. And it would seem to be that when we recognize the miracle working of God in our hearts, all we would think about is getting others that we know, loving, uh, love those that we love in our families, our acquaintances, people at work, people that we even meet on the streets, wherever we are. It would be our desire to welcome them into a place where maybe they would experience the Jesus that we've come to know. Now, not just that, we would be doing that in personal acts of good works and we would be sacrificing uh, our time and energies for other people, we'd be serving them and loving them and looking for opportunities to share the gospel, right? But there would also be this desire, if I could just get people into the place where, where Jesus promises to meet in, in sort of a, a corporate setting, a body of believers, it would seem like that would be our passion, right? So we'd be praying for that every week. We would be desirous of, of seeing people come and be introduced to the gospel, but sometimes I wonder if that's really where we are. I wonder if really we've slid over that agenda-driven side where we just were comfortable here. This is all about us. It's all about what we like. I mean, that's why we have to be careful. And I thought about this, you know. It's a, as a church, we need to remember that our ministry isn't about polished sermons or amazing music and singers. It's not about fancy stage setups or full parking lots or a cool coffee shop or amazing programs or musicals that can wow the crowd. That's not what we should be about. And sometimes, I'm going to be frankly honest with you right here, sometimes I think we all put a little too much strength in those things. And I'm ashamed of that sometimes. I'm ashamed that I lean more toward the 
you know, the way that, man, we could just do these things and people would just be so, no. We need the power of God in this place. The power of God comes not through polished sermons, great music. I'm not putting those things down. I mean, let's praise God for good sermons, hopefully, and, and good music, hopefully, and all those other things. Praise God for everything he's given us around here. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, please, be careful not to trust so much in those things that we lose what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, where he says uh, that, that we, would, we would pray that, that men's faith would not rest on our wisdom, but on God's power. And sometimes I think we just yield a little too much. In fact, sometimes I think we've yielded to so many of those kinds of things that we don't even really need the Spirit's power around here. Is that you? I mean, did you even think about coming in here today? Did you think, God, I hope you just land on this place today and you, just, you, just, you do your miraculous work of saving people, of giving people encouragement, giving people like the Andes of this world hope to go on for another day to trust that you are enough, that you will meet our needs? I mean, did you wrestle with God about that this week? Did you wrestle about that last night? I did. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying, am I one of only or am I one of many? It would say, God, you alone can work in this place. And it doesn't matter what programs we have or what buildings we have or what presence we have in our community. If you don't work, this is all just man's wisdom. Please, Lord. Please, Lord, keep us from that kind of church. Which brings us to another thing I see in Jesus' miraculous power. It's personal, it's effective, it's instantaneous, it's purposeful, it's appealing, and it's also authoritative. It's authoritative. And this is really, really important. What I mean by authoritative is he says, notice again, with a word he healed all the sick, verse 16. And that's, that's a reminder to us that it is the word of God that changes lives. That's why we invest in scriptures. I mean, we didn't plan this, but praise God for a day where we can celebrate Gideon's in a text like this. Because Jesus said the word. It's his word. This is not a harbinger for those that come along saying, all I have to do is speak it and it's going to happen. No, no, no. This is Jesus' word. This is his word applied to whatever situation that you might be looking at in your life. So you take the book and you open it. Like I heard a pastor say earlier in this week, some of us need to stop listening for a voice and we need to start looking for a verse. <laughs> That's worth remembering. We want Jesus' power and his presence to draw hungry, hungry and thirsty people into his presence and to see that it is his word that sets people free. Which brings us to the last thing, and that is it is not only all of those things, but it's also significant. And here he quotes from Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 is the place where he's quoting from, verse 4. And by the way, here's a little learning key. Little spoiler alert. Every time in the Gospel of Matthew when you read a quotation, a cite quotation like this, this is just one little verse, a little portion of a verse. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Every time you see Matthew do this, he's expecting the reader to know the context. We're out of time, but I've got to show you this quick, real quick. Isaiah 53. You got your Bibles? Turn there, quick. Isaiah 53, you're using that book rack Bible, page 1145. Who's Isaiah writing about? 
when he says in verse two, he grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Who's the him? Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Who's the him? He who desired and reject, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Who are we talking about? Like one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Who are we talking about? Oh, it's obvious, Jesus. When did Isaiah write those words? Eighth century BC, 700 He prophesied between 739 and about 650-something. He prophesied to to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them, you're gonna all fall down just like the northern kingdom fell down in 722. He witnessed that. He preached about that. He told them about their captivity, and he told them they'd come out of their captivity. And he tells them about the suffering servant, Jesus. That's why this whole book is a miracle. 750 years before Jesus came to this earth. We're reading about him in Isaiah's prophecies. You need something more than that? I think that's pretty good right there. Someone doesn't, ah, the word of God, it's full of contradictions. Oh, really? Have you read it? It's full of prophetic announcements that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and it all points to him. It's a, it's a miracle from verse one of Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all the way to the end, the book of Revelation, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, it all points to him, it's all about him, and it's only about him. It's significant. His miraculous power is not a little sideshow that happens so that people get goosebumps and say, wow, I want more of this Christianity. It's a life-changing work that starts with being personal. That means it's for you. It's for you. And ends with being significant. That means it's about his word and his life in you. Well, there's more, but that's enough. Let's pray.